Sorry, not sorry. This is Dope Movies and Shows, known to our friends as DMS. I'm Nat, and with me as always is my bud here, Hemingford Gray. How you doing? Not too bad. Sorry, not sorry, Pogasari. <laughs> That's right. Uh, today we're going to be talking about, I guess, lesser known kaiju films for those unfamiliar kaiju are giant monsters in the same vein as godzilla i would say that uh i don't know did godzilla start the kaiju genre i don't really know or was it king kong i'm sure someone would put us right if we said either (laughs) there you go yeah we don't claim to be a source of truth at all on this show (laughs) audience do not accept anything you hear as any kind of uh expert analysis we're just we're just really speaking from the heart here on DMS. All right. So the first movie we're going to talk about is Pulgasari. Now, everyone, raise your hands if you've heard of this one. Okay. Not okay. until you yeah, tell me about it, Nat. <laughs> so yeah, this was uh, this was based on uh, ancient Korean legend uh, where where a monster that uh, subsists on iron. So this was this was made in North Korea um based on this legend now in korea that's only a legend but in the west we actually do have mikhail latito have you ever heard of mikhail latito hemingford he was actually a guy who ate iron he ate metal and lots of other things that were uh that are typically inedible does he eat light bulbs as well uh that that wasn't on any list that i've seen but he has light bulbs he has eaten a cessna aircraft (laughs) oh okay that's like his biggest claim to fame. He ate a Cessna aircraft. Like he's eaten something like uh, uh, 18 bicycles, um, all, all this other stuff. And for his achievements, he was given a bronze placard by the uh, Guinness Book of World Records. That's, a, that's only a good anecdote if he ate it. And he knew that. He knew that as well because he did eat it. <laughs> so um, we, have, we have a legendary creature based on a Frenchman. No, no, not actually. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is a, a kaiju movie made exclusively in North Korea, but the special effects director was from Japan, and he actually worked on a whole bunch of uh, Godzilla movies. Now, um, he was working voluntarily, whereas the director was not. Okay, so uh, Kim Jong-il produced the movie. Kim Jong-il is the, f- the father of the current ruler of Korea. I think it's appropriate to call him a the ruler of Korea. Korea has a ruler, right? They don't really have a government. They have a Marvelous ruler. Marvelous singing voice. Do you remember him singing So Romery? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> Kim Jong-il uh, produced the movie before he was actually ruler, while his, his father, so the current ruler's grandfather, was still in, in power. Um, and, and Kim Jong-il happened to be a huge movie fan. So therefore, he had his favorite director from South Korea kidnapped, along with his wife, to North Korea, um, where he directed a bunch of movies that were explicitly meant 
as propaganda uh, for the socialist government, the quote, workers' revolution. And that includes Polgasari, which was the last film directed by, by this guy uh, before he and his wife uh, somehow escaped to America. And I, I think that's absolutely like like a fascinating legend. Like, <laughs> there's no one in North Korea that could like direct this movie. Or if there was, Kim Jong Il, who's essentially like a, a spoiled prince, decides like I really like this director, you know, and he gets his his people, his servants, to just just go and kidnap someone from another country. Essentially, what is another country, and and then he has to live there for like seven years or whatever it is and direct movies for this this spoiled uh this this spoiled brat i that that to me is just uh <laughs> well, that's a film in itself <laughs> uh, yeah it is you're right and and i i bet you if we looked it up there probably is one if there isn't someone get to work on that because that's freaking amazing uh and, and just imagine this happened in the 20th century this happened in the 20th century after world war ii this happened in the 20th century, like like after the Heart Cellar Act was passed. <laughs> this is like recent history, and um, and 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 it's it's something that actually happened is amazing to me. Um, so whereas uh, like kaiju are often symbolic uh, of something or another, the the way that Polgasari, which is the titular kaiju in this movie, the way that he's used actually changes throughout the film. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but uh, first, I want to uh, mention the setting. So it takes place during the, uh, the Goryeo dynasty. So it's a dynasty of Korean antiquity. Um, they were active about a thousand years ago. And they actually united Korea into, uh, into one nation. Uh, that's actually where Korea gets its name. The Goryeo dynasty kind of, you know... I guess translates into the modern term Korea, Goryeo Korea, um, and and that that to me is like a pretty common theme with big Asian countries. Like I feel like uh, I've heard about this for like all big three. Like you have China, which I think are like the Qing Dynasty or something, united all the different uh, warring states into one country. Um, you, I think you have it with Japan, where like you know there was one warlord who united Japan into one country, and so that apparently also took place. Uh, with Korea now, did, uh, I'm wondering: Is this like an Asian thing, or did, did this ever happen in England, Hemingford? Uh, I don't know because we already had a monarchy. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I suppose you had uh, you had Harold who fought at the Battle of um, Hastings. You had um, uh, Alfred the Great, Arthur, King Arthur, King Arthur you, united yeah, have... united England into one country. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, it's kind of bitch. We're we're a bit odd, aren't we? Because we're like th- for three countries jam together I know, I know that england is is currently united with pakistan but you know <laughs> just in in antiquity if there were any any warring states that like eventually coalesced into into britain um <laughs> um i suppose kind of wales i suppose but that still has a border on it I d- yeah it's kind of we're a bit of an odd odd thing to uh to explain <laughs> we're kind of a unique one <laughs> yeah in england it's more complicated in yeah. in asia it's simple as you know one guy just beat goes around beating up everyone until they join his crew yeah, exactly. that's literally just how it goes that's literally how it goes um <laughs> so in the in the 20th century before christian nationalists established the people's republic of uh of of, of korea who who currently rule over 
North Korea. So the, I just want to emphasize that North Korea was established by Christian nationalists, um, but before them, the Japanese ruled. And the Japanese, from like the beginning of the 20th century up until the end of World War II, when they got their, their ship pushed in, um, they, uh, they were ruling over the Koreans. And they actually brought an industrial revolution to Korea. Before that, the Koreans were just like basically peasant farmers. And North Korea was actually where industry was the most plentiful. Um, but agriculture was not so much because of the terrain. So they actually, that, that, that to me explains partly why North Korea Juche uh, results frequently in famine and starvation. Because, you know, maybe they still have an aspect of, of industry. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think the Koreans were able to do that on their own. It really did take the Japanese to do that for them. Um, and I guess when the Koreans were, you know, quote, liberated from Japan, uh, they still kind of like <laughs> had a hard time, um, had a hard time running, uh, running their country in a, in a more uh, modern post-industrial way. Uh, whereas South Korea, you know, is obviously just a vassal state of America. Um, the North Koreans, uh, they, they sort of practice a little bit more independence. They're, nah, they're kind of a vassal state of China, but uh, they, they still have issues with agriculture, um, which is kind of ironic because a part of their socialist revolution is like a workers' revolution. It's about, you know, the, the, uh, the farmer and the factory worker and all this marxist stuff that you know happened in russia and of course you know spread throughout uh spread throughout asia to china and vietnam and whatnot um and you know failed time and time again giving way to what is essentially capitalism now but anyway uh it's it's a little bit uh it's interesting that this film sort of takes those themes and applies them to a kaiju movie and so let's before we talk about the events of the film, I kind of want to say I liked this movie. I'll just say right off the bat, I liked this movie. Um, so I can't even talk about it in a way that's that sarcastic because I was actually very entertained by it. What did you think, uh, Hemingford? Did you like? Yeah, yeah, it's, def it's definitely. I mean, this is the first first time I've seen it, so I don't have any kind of historical leanings towards you know um like nostalgia for it but yeah i enjoyed it it's it's a work it's a worthy entry to the kaiju genre yeah like um did you even hear about this before we talked about it for this no no uh, you you've 100 introduced me to this film right and i think i feel like that's pretty common um i first heard about it a, a quite a long time ago um and when i did it was almost impossible to like download this movie it was almost impossible to get a copy uh now i feel like with i guess in more recent years like over the over the obama administration north korea it became kind of a fad um in the west to talk about that i suppose after like the iraq war was winding down people needed another super villain to obsess over and north korea filled that niche uh very well well he, do he does wear the dr evil suit doesn't he kim, <laughs> kim jong-il <laughs> uh he wears a very stylish jumpsuit okay and so i think that the fact that you know everyone's obsessed with north korea and it's like hey did you know that they made a godzilla movie and they had to uh you know abduct the director for it and yada 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 i think that sort of lore 
around North Korea and especially around this movie made it more popular. So it's a little bit easier to get your hands on nowadays. So the movie opens up to shots of farmers and other workers just sort of like, you know, it sort of looks like a typical village scene from antiquity. I mean, a lot of movies sort of use this as sort of filler, but this movie's doing it for a specific purpose. It's demonstrating, look at this village of people who have a close bond with one another. You know, the 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 young and the old have a very distinct relationship. They're helping out one another to create a functioning society. Um, this is supposed to be like a sentimental and happy scene for the viewer. And the viewer would be pretty much exclusively a North Korean of the time. You know, these movies were made as propaganda entertainment for North Koreans. And and so when a North Korean is watching this movie, they, they're really explicitly meant to be relating this to their own life. So when they see an opening shot of a bunch of people working, it's meant to imbue them with ideas of of happiness and sentimentality around like yeah these are people who are honest working folk who live for productivity the, these are these are uh not the bourgeoisie you know so we've got like blacksmiths and farmers and just people working with their hands um but pretty quickly they start to get uh, accosted by the dynastic nobility so this is the Goryeo dynasty nobility. They look kind of like, I don't know, they, to me, they look just exactly like uh, what you might see in like uh, Chinese movies about ancient China, you know, like Hero or something like that, where uh, they've got like the full regalia of like plated armor, like sort of samurai-ish looking or whatever, uh, with all the, you know, the, the, the swooping curves to their... Uh, their their uniforms and whatnot. Well, they don't take no messing neither, do they? No, no. The... They're a, they're a rather they're a rather brother brutal people, aren't they? Yeah, the patriarch, this old guy, he's an old man. He's wrongly imprisoned because he's supposedly uh, cooperating with the revolutionaries, who the nobility call bandits. And um, and this is just because uh, one of um, one of the younger men in the village, his uh, his friend who's one of the revolutionaries, asked him to hide some swords. And I guess uh, the nobility catch wind of this, and you know they, they, they think that the villagers are all cooperating with the revolutionaries, and so they take the leader of the town and they put him in jail, where I guess he's going to die. Um, but by the way, was the main dude of the film like this? Th there's this younger guy who's kind of our, uh, our uh, main Indi character Indi, for a it? while. Say again? Is it Indy his name? Indy? Oh, I don't know anyone's name. Don't ask me yeah, that. <laughs> um, but the, the, was the main dude being set up to marry his cousin? Did you catch that? I, I don't know, because it's not really fleshed out, is it? They just exchange a few looks, don't they? He calls, I think he calls the patriarch uncle. But then the then the uh, the guy the patriarch says to him, like you know, I never I never wanted this. I wanted you to take over my uh, my blacksmithing or whatever, and then marry my daughter. Where well, is it? So, um, uh, being being a, a close knit community, it could well be that uncle is kind of a a, a, a name for anybody that like elder male. Yeah, I, I thought about that not just because it's a close knit community, but because like from what I'm familiar with Asian cultures, like at least it's common to call someone like brother or sister. Yeah. I think. Uh so that that could be it. 
Um, I don't think that many uh, Eurasian societies, like, I don't think it's a social convention to marry your cousin. No, I don't think so. So we get, then we get into, I mean, this, the, I, I found the pacing of the story to actually be pretty good. It's, it's kind of slow, as you might expect from an older film. Um and and honestly, this film feels a lot older than it is. Now, this this is this is kind of another um, peculiarity of Polgasari. So it was made in 1985, but it looks like it was made in like 1961. Yeah, it <laughs> like, feels like it feels like feels like one of the very early like color um, Godzillas, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, but it was made in the same year as freaking Back to the Future. <laughs> like if you watch this movie it's like impossible to fathom that it is is in the same decade as back to the future or or like a dozen other uh 80s movies because of of how it looks like everything from the film quality to the color quality to the effects um it's not like embarrassing though it does look like 1960s era um but i would say that aside from some green screenshots they do a decent job with how it looks. And and again, this is the guy who did like something like 12 Godzilla movies was doing the special effects or directing the special well, effects. Well, I found, I found the top 10 highest grossing films of 1985. So this was the same year as Back to the Future, Rambo Part 2, Rocky IV, The Color Purple, Out of Africa, Cocoon, The Jewel of the Nile, Witness, The Goonies, and Spies Like Us. Yeah, I mean, aside from Out of Africa, I would say <laughs> that Back to the Future has the best effects of any of those uh, I movies. I think Cocoon's, Cocoon's probably pushing it, isn't it? Because you've you got the aliens in it as well. You know, I don't think I've ever seen Cocoon, but um, we can uh, we can assume that it has better effects than uh, than Paul yeah. Gassari. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, then we get into the origin story of Polgasari, which to me is is pretty interesting because it has sort of a folklore feel to it. I don't know if this is actually a part of um, real Korean folklore or if it's something that they wrote for the movie. If it's something they wrote for the movie, I'm actually impressed because it's kind of inventive. Um, but I couldn't actually I couldn't find any inf substantial information about the. Um, the folktale that this is based on, the legend this is based on. So the old dude, the patriarch, is wasting away in jail, and some maidens of the village, which I believe includes his daughter, uh, throw him rice through the window. Now, instead of eating the rice, he takes it and molds it into a miniature statue of the kaiju beast Polgasari. And it's really well crafted. And I feel like that is kind of pertinent to the themes of the plot. Because as he's molding Polgasari in his sort of like a deranged, uh, half-dead, uh, starving state, um, he gives kind of like this little, uh, this little monologue, this soliloquy, like, in this world that oppresses the worker so badly, I've created something every day of my life. Like, it really hits you over the head with the workers' revolution themes. Uh, and... <laughs> I, it it doesn't actually let up. I think throughout the whole movie, but this it, it does take moments to like completely smash you over the head to make sure that you understand. You know, this is propaganda, and this is what we believe. It's probably about as subtle as uh, the Last Jedi. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Except except these themes are actually somewhat interesting. Like I get that they're basically communist socialist themes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they actually are. Uh, 
I, I, I feel like these themes are actually more worth exploring than some pink-haired feminist themes from The Last oh, Jedi. Definitely. Like, at least these people are heroes and not just assholes. <laughs> like, at least they live in a society. <laughs> I, I mean, when you think about it, this is more of a um, a social justice film than The Last Jedi because these people are actually fighting against a greater power like these are actually people who have nothing who are being accosted by a greater power whereas in the last jedi it's basically just the government uh trying to fuck up some uh, angry white men i say so are you saying uh, the last jedi is dems versus repubs <laughs> yeah essentially well it's more like uh it's more like dems versus i don't know patriot prayer <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think I think we're dragging ourselves a bit off topic now. No. I don't care. <laughs> but the, okay, so the statue ends up somehow, I forget, in his daughter's home. And it comes to life when a drop of the daughter's blood falls on it. I think while she's sewing or so, she's sewing or something, she, she pricks herself. So that yeah, I missed is... that bit, so I can't say. Oh, okay. <laughs> we're, dope movies and shows, folks, where we really get to... Uh, into real movie analysis um but i i i i just found this fascinating again because it's so much like a fairy tale you know this feels like something you would see in a disney movie or you know it's source material grim fairy tales where uh you know the father it's kind of like is it um, rumpelstiltskin that's 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 to do with pricking your finger on a needle isn't it yeah exactly exactly and perhaps if this is not actual korean folklore perhaps it was inspired by um western folklore i wouldn't be surprised by that at all i mean so much of uh you know uh, the world's culture is inspired by western cultures so i i would not be surprised by that but it could also be uh, an actual korean uh, tale but it does feel like a like a fairy tale you know make a little um, uh, statue out of molded out of rice and then some blood falls on it and now uh the statue comes to life and we find that the statue because he was brought to life by the daughter's blood, uh, he's kind of a faithful servant of the daughter. So that's how he is bound to um, to the peasantry, to the workers, because of the, you know, I would, I would imagine that there's an element of purity. I would think that the daughter is a virgin. Um, she is unmarried, I believe. Um, although I feel like there was a scene where she was sleeping naked with the, um, the younger dude. I feel like there is like a there's a love story going on there that they they don't explore super deeply, but um I I don't know yeah, like I, 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 I want to believe of, it. There's a lot of looks in uh, exchange, aren't there? Yeah, yeah, but um but her blood falls on the statue, so now the Godzilla monster is uh, bound to serve her. Um, but it starts off like the size of a mouse. However, it gets bigger by eating iron. So I think that same needle that pricked the daughter. Uh, uh, Polgasari eats it, and so he gets a little bit bigger. And there's a there's such a funny shot where um I think the it, uh, it could be iron from blood because he's oh my he's god oh my god you're blowing my mind here that is so that is so <laughs> deep that is so deep he's brought to life by the iron in the blood holy shit okay okay see this is a good movie this is a good movie and after Polgasari comes to life there's a shot okay this is what i was thinking of so i bet you the daughter was a virgin when she brought Polgasari to life but immediately after 
you know, gets it on with the dude because I think there's the there's the daughter and the dude. They're sleeping in bed, but Polgasari's sleeping next to them under the covers. No, no, it's that's very the, cute. That, that's her brother. She's in bed with. Oh, that's her brother. Oh, she had sex with her brother. No, no, she sleeps. Oh, because okay, okay, yeah, yeah, they, right, they right, live right. in the same house hut thing. Don't okay, they? fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. I, I swear to God, I remember them being shirtless, but whatever. Um, it's a platonic Bert and Ernie situation. <laughs> yeah, right. Not, not so much anymore, my dude. Anyway. <laughs> Um, so he, Paul Gasari gets, you know, bigger cause he's like eating iron and he's, um, so he's like eating the bad guy's swords when they come to, uh, like kill all the men in the village and Paul Gasari, you know, BTFOs them. And so they leave. And this is the beginning of an all out revolution against the nobility. And that's, I think where the really interesting part of Paul Gasari as a kaiju film happens. You know where the workers are actively rebelling. Uh, this the, the, this this becomes an all-out war, and so you have all these big battle scenes of the sort that you're kind of used to seeing in movies staged in antiquity. You know, like in ancient Rome and what have you. Um, Although on, on a sli- on a slightly comedic point, it did remind me of Takeshi's Castle. Some of the battle scenes <laughs> where they're trying to trying to run uphill and having boulders rolled down at them and stuff like that. Oh yeah, like the the effects and such are kind of simplistic, but if you um if you if you kind of take it for what it is, what you're really getting here is uh is is kind of an ancient war movie, you know, something like Braveheart or, or Spartacus or whatever, with a kaiju thrown in. So the proletariat army is attacking the nobility, and and the proletariats just have like farm equipment and shabby weaponry. But they also have Polgasari helping, and and of course he's completely wrecking them. So I I think like the the point of this is that uh, well, even if we, though... can dial, if we can dial it back a bit, there is the section where they get um, Polgasari goes missing for a bit, isn't it? It's just after he's very tiny, and then they like get besieged, don't they? They get um, stuck on the mountain. They're, they're like surrounded and stuck on the mountain, aren't they? Right, and I think they're like it. It, it kind of gets a bit nitty gritty. I think the. Um, the the peasants are eating hay. They're subsisting uh, they're on e- hay. They're eating bark. They they eat the horse. Did you notice that bit where they cut the head horse horse head off and it gets dumped on the floor? Oh no, I I didn't notice that. Wow, yeah, that, ah, well, that's this, pretty cool. The siege stuff. It kind of it kind of it made me had a bit I, have a bit of a look at some other times that strange stuff has been eaten during sieges, and I did notice that okay. um, there was the in uh, there was a northern Italy in there was a battle in northern Italy during World War Two where they ate cat. Um, in the in in Paris during the Franco-Prussian War, they ate cats, dogs, rats, horses, donkey, camels, and elephants. A bit of a Venezuela situation going on there. Um, there was a battle in the Philippines in the Battle of Bataan, where dogs, dogs, monkeys, monitor lizards, pythons, mules, horses, and caribos, whatever they are, were, were eaten as well by U.S. and Filipinos uh, forces. And then in Cambodia, when there was one of their, I, I assume, many famines, they the fried tarantula, scorpion, silkworm, grasshoppers. <laughs> so there has been some very strange stuff eaten during during sieges. Hey man, I mean, if I'm under siege, I'll I'll friggin' I'll eat anything. By the way, caribou are like reindeer. Oh, so like it's that. not that weird. Oh, that's not odd. But but yeah, and and this seems to be like uh, because it, it you know since this is like socialist, communist, like revolution propaganda, um, this is kind of a similar theme to what 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 I have 
seen in like other Asian countries. Like it's a pretty popular legend. I don't know. It might not be a legend, but it, it's also very possible that it is uh, in China. Uh, one oft repeated thing that I've read about is that the uh, revolutionary army, you know, led by Mao. So the, you know, the, the, the army that would eventually become the communist government in China, that they subsisted against the Japanese I think it was uh, during World War II. They subsisted by eating shoe leather. I have heard, I've heard of his shoe leather being eaten before. Yeah, there you I'm go. Yeah, very popular leather, yeah. legend. And, and aren't there, uh, was it Stalingrad? There was rumors of cannibalism as well. I you know I, I've but never you heard never of know, that. You never know whether that's proper, where it's like propaganda from the enemy or something like that, though, do you? I mean, you never know if it's propaganda from the, you know the, the their own government. Because I yeah. think that uh, these sorts of things are memed to uh, generate kind of a sense of heroism or a sense of desperation. I mean, if you hear that, oh man, the 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 Chinese army is so scrappy that they're freaking eating their own shoes to continue fighting. They're so dedicated. And, and keep in mind, you know, we're getting a bit into uh, esoteric Asian uh, history <laughs> here of the 20th century. I um, only half intended that, but um, you you have not only the communist army kind of fighting against the Japanese during World War II, they're also kind of fighting against the uh, Republic, the, the non-communist uh, uh, people who were ruling in China uh, before the communists took over. Um, so I think that, you know, spreading spreading propaganda in China of how, how dedicated these people are and the fact that communist uh, army was very instrumental in defeating the Japanese that contributed greatly to them being able to to take over China. So, yeah, I, I I mean if you if you consider that almost the exact same kind of motif is used in this film which is propaganda. Yeah, people eating weird stuff, great propaganda piece, right? Mm. So just uh if you want to take over your country, just tell people you eat spiders or some crap to impress them. <laughs> so Polgasari I also noticed uh, about Pol Polgasari's look, those horns, he looked very bull-like, doesn't he? The head I didn't know yeah, that absolutely. I thought that he might be actually. I think he's sort of based on like a, a a dog beast. So he's sort of like a like a dragon, a dog, and a lion put together. Yeah, he's he's very canine. He's not his snout's very canine looking, isn't it? Right, and I oh I I I don't know the Korean word for dog, but I think it's uh um it's similar uh. No, I can't find it right now. Whatever. Um, but yeah, he, uh, he. But you know, he looks like Godzilla. He looks like Godzilla. He's a reptilian, uh, bipedal monster with big, with, with strong arms, and you know, he's friggin' Godzilla. He's just a little, yeah, yeah. Uh, little different take on it. Um, so he wrecks the nobility. The uh, the workers win, but then there's a twist. Then there's a twist. So as if this movie wasn't already curious enough, there's also like. The entire last act of it is uh is, is totally different from the rest of the movie. So once the workers' party wins the war, they find that Polgasari's appetite for iron goes from being an asset to a liability because he cannot be sated. Well, that's where so, he kind of reminded me a bit of the go the golem, the Jewish myth. Oh yeah, can you re recant that? How is that similar? Um, because basically, I think usually what happens with golems is is they is they um they carry on and they and then and then they start being a bit of trouble, be, being being a bit of a problem once once they've actually sorted out what they've needed to. Okay, I can actually think of a lot of golems in real life like that. <laughs> 
So uh, they feed Polgasari like all the iron in the country, notably including their farming equipment. And they even yell out at one point, like, we fed him all of our farming equipment. And so that's obviously, you know, supposed to be very symbolic. Um, So they're only left with a ravenous beast who must be defeated. And I won't spoil this last bit, but he must be defeated with with tragic consequences. I did. It did. It did kind of make me chuckle when they said like about running out of running out of uh, tools and cl- and um, food making equipment because it was like they were pretty much in the same boat they started in. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, well, if if Polgasari to- towards the beginning of the movie represents the fiery determination and social justice of the People's Revolution, um, this must this this kind of comes to represent something different later on. So what do you what do you think this uh, this shift of Polgasari's role is kind of trying to say as a propaganda piece? <laughs> let me let me have a think. It's uh, I, th- I think it's kind of similar to the phrase. It doesn't matter who you vote for, you still the government still get in. Is what it kind of reminded me of. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I almost well I could see that happening in like a uh, in in a western movie. I mean, like Western is in the genre West, as in the West. Yeah. Um, but here, there, it's a propaganda movie that is trying to make you grateful for the People's Democratic Republic of Korea, and so that to, it, it must. It, I think it at first because Polgasari is their ally, it represents the values of the party, um, and when it becomes the people's enemy. I think it, it it's warning against uh, th- that which the party stands against. So if the democratization of prosperity brought by industry is kind of what Polgasari first represents, because, you know, he's an iron eater. And even though this is taken from le- a legend, uh, this is very, you know, reminiscent of, of kind of industry replacing... Um, ancient forms of uh of productivity blacksmithing agriculture etc then perhaps that prosperity must be balanced so that the people don't become victims of modernity so modernity makes people into kind of bourgeoisie and sort of you know if they're the the absence of their farming equipment is like the absence of anyone who can actually be called a worker actually produces anymore they're just consumers they're just consumers who uh exchange existing goods rather than you know creating anything of whole from whole cloth i suppose it could also could be a bit of an analog for like you know south american governments you know where you have like a dictator prime minister and then there's a, a military coup and then the other then the other lot get in and it's pretty and you still have to pay them the same price even though even though it's a different different head at the uh head of the government i don't know enough about like i'm sure this has a more a lot more texture for oh i think actual it's def- north koreans yeah i think it's very specific to north korea but you can you can um open it up to other analogs can't you as well yeah sure i mean it'll have a different meaning for us but um you know i'm i'm just sort of uh i took from it like if i put my mind into uh you know a socialist democratic workers party blah 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 of of, uh, Mm -hmm. north korea um it i I think it's sort of first a you know bring the worker up but don't ever become lethargic don't ever become don't ever become complacent 
or you'll turn right back into the bourgeoisie. Well, there is, isn't there? Isn't there a phrase? Is it, is it the uh, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance or something? Is that a phrase? Yes, that's right. The price of freedom is eternal vigilance. That's right. Uh, a really great uh, Wing Commander game. Use that as <laughs> subtitle: The Price of Freedom. So I, I really like this movie again. And I, I do recommend anyone who likes uh, kaiju films to check it out. You just got to pretend that it was made in the 60s and <laughs> not in the 80s. Um, but speaking of modernity, we're going to be talking about a much more modern Korea in our next movie, The Host. So this is a South Korean movie made in 2006. Uh, it's called The Host, which makes it sound like some kind of, uh, I don't know, like suspense horror movie, not a kaiju movie. It's not a title that makes me think of a kaiju movie. I don't know if this is the original Korean name or not. I was going to say, it sounds like, seems like some sort of mistranslation, doesn't it? Because at no point is there any hosting involved. <laughs> yeah, you're right. There, and, and well, The Host is like some kind of a, like, biological thing like it makes me imagine like a virus that turns people into zombies or something of that nature like a body snatcher kind of thing it implies kind of something parasitic or something like that doesn't it the host yeah yeah exactly a parasite right and this yeah. is not really the same thing like this is a kaiju that's like it, it, it's still amphibious like a lot of kaiju are um but this one is pretty small maybe a bit bigger than an elephant so what defines kaiju then because the the host is not very big is it it's not like a big you know um skyscraper sized creature is it no not, not so even kaiju not just even creature remotely. then is it yeah what defines a kaiju i think it's just any large monster that is a it's a kind of a i mean size matters size absolutely matters like if this was a uh, you know dog sized uh, creature i would not call it a kaiju but i think <laughs> it's any any kind of creature that is big which is uh terrorizing people yeah big enough to swallow a human being should we should we should we set it at that i think that's a yeah if it if it can swallow a human being whole i think it it's possible to call call it a kaiju um but whereas a lot of kaiju movies kind of paint the monster up as sort of heroic or or its existence is justified in some way this thing is just terrible and the movie itself is a is a little bit depressing and i think that has to do with the size of it because the terror it causes is a lot more ground level and it's basically just constricted to one family there are some scenes where you know there there's people running in every direction and it's a big emergency but but a, a lot of the film just involves uh one family fighting against this kaiju um although it's the the monster is kind of still treated in the same way as other movies where it's a big national emergency the government getting involved and whatnot but um it's not the same kind of vibe where the monster's kind of uh running roughshod through a city it's uh the story is really about how the family is being affected it's just kind of this loser dad uh, i think his wife died and he's now losing his mind trying to protect his daughter from this creature but what makes this this uh really kind of interesting to me uh is that while pulgasari you know you could you could kind of consider it to be 
a film against American imperialism. And this was made in 1985. Over 20 years later, um, this this movie uh, made in South Korea still has feelings of anti-Americanism. In fact, the way that the kaiju is born, they they, they show this scene at the beginning of the movie uh, in some kind of lab. I don't know what it is. It's some kind of indescript, I think, military lab um, (laughs) where you have an American scientist who's uh, being assisted by a a young Korean. And the uh, American uh, tells the Korean to dispose of some chemicals. Uh, and he's like, oh, you know, just just dump it down the sink. And the Korean's like, but but that goes straight into the public water supply. And the American's like, ah, fuck it. Just do it, you stupid Korean. So I, notably that uh, the guy that that tells him to dump the chemicals down the brain he, he, down the drain he, he was in um he was in the walking dead for a couple of seasons Oh really? Oh that's funny. Yeah, yeah I just watched the first 3 seasons. I don't um and I, I actually have yeah, was rewatched the host it, recently so He was he was in the he was Herschel from the um from the farmhouse. Do you remember when they get to the farmhouse in the second oh, series? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that It's actually a bit surprising to me that they would have like a real actor in a movie made in Korea. Because typically when I see like a random white person in an Asian movie, uh, they're, you know, if they're, if they're just playing an extra like that, they're typically just someone who like, you know, like, hey, do you speak Korean or something like <laughs> that or, or whatever? There's just someone they scooped off uh off the street um i mean you watch some of these godzilla movies that include uh uh white people and they're just like not they're 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 not good looking they 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 behave strangely <laughs> you just know that they would never ever have an acting role in a real hollywood movie um yeah so that's interesting to me but um but yeah so this is the the monster is unnecessarily a product of American involvement. And that's the brilliant thing about kaiju films, is because a lot of them uh, contain social commentary. They're not only popcorn movies. If you think back to the original Godzilla, that is really about um, a few stress points for the Japanese. It's not merely just like, oh, look at this giant monster blowing stuff up. Isn't that cool? It's... uh, it's about what the monster represents and i don't quite understand what this monster represents but they sort of just set up this contrived thing it actually kind of feels like a like a social justice note because it is so damn contrived there's no reason it's for the the thing to have been caused by americans and they don't actually bring it up later on in the movie when the government has to deal with the monster they start to use some uh chemical weapons that they call agent yellow i believe clearly a reference to agent orange agent from uh, uh from vietnam how how do the koreans feel about their military bases i mean is is there some sort of um paranoia about about it or fear or something is that where it come or is that where it could come from well, I, I don't think that the japanese or the Koreans, like for everything that I've heard about, like in different media I've consumed and news I've read, it feels like they don't particularly like the heavy American influence. Um, I, I, and, and you always hear stuff about how American involvement in Korea or Japan, like especially Okinawa, are, uh, is going to be phased out in the future. But then I, it doesn't really happen. 
it's like we we they want to be sovereign nations. They feel like they don't they're they're strong independent nations that don't need no America. <laughs> but at the same time, they can't really subsist without protection of the American military. They need that factor to protect them from say North Korea, to protect them from China. And I mean, as long as that, that as long as that exists, uh, that dynamic, that 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 you know, global dynamic, you're just gonna have like pithy little shots taken at the Americans in films like this, you know, <laughs> where they're whining about American imperialism while simultaneously like kind of having their entire country built by America. Like Japan would not be this modern powerhouse without America. South Korea would not have i mean south korea is a tiny little peninsula country uh they they would not be the power the uh, the economic powerhouse they are today without american involvement i mean americans essentially built up these countries right it's their uh influence as consumers of asian products it's their uh influence as immigrants providing extremely high skill services and training the local population. I mean, it's essentially the um, the relationship that the English had with India for like, what was it, a century or more that the English occupied India? But in that time, they modernized uh, India. Uh, tons of people from India went to England to receive education, mostly like the royalty and whatnot. And they were able to use that to sort of transition into, you know, being the government, the, the independent the sovereign government of India. Um, now, after that occupation, I don't think things went too awesome for India, but <laughs> uh, once they did become sovereign, but you know, it's kind I of the same they space program, though, don't they? Yeah, right. Uh, but it's sort of the same story with Korea. Like they were a bunch of peasant farmers, and then Japan sort of built them up a little bit to join the Industrial Revolution, and then they were. You know, Korea was taken over by America, and they sort of brought them in to join the tech revolution. So that's the story of Korea, uh, getting conquered over and over again. <laughs> but I'll tell you uh, who's never been conquered. No, no, no. They do the conquering, the English. <laughs> and Except in this case. <laughs> except in the case of our next film, Gorka. Gorgon, more like Borgon. And I said more like Borgon. We are the music makers. And we Television is Wakanda, nigga! And reality is Wakanda Yeah, so Gorgo takes place in the UK, and I'm like, holy shit, a British kaiju movie? Like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Had you heard of this one before I mentioned it to you? Now? Well, right. Uh, uh, so for our listeners who may not be aware, you're not Australian, you're not South African, you're not Canadian. No, you're from that other <laughs> non-American English-speaking country, England. I certainly am. <laughs> and and so uh, when you think of a monster movie taking place in jolly old England, you know, you immediately think, okay, Big Ben ripping pieces, 
right? Yeah, Big Ben got wrecked. Right, so you immediately think, okay, if you're going to have a monster movie in England, you've got to destroy Big Ben. And London Bridge. Well, we'll we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But first, I want to set up kind of what this, um, kind of the premise behind this movie. Um, so there are actually two monsters, a mother and a baby. Um, so they use this kind of thing to rip off Godzilla and King Kong at the same time. So... <laughs> Whereas uh, where the where the baby monster is kind of captured, and I want to say it's like the size of maybe like the size of King Kong, like it's not huge, uh, it's big but not huge, and so they they capture it and they they set it up in kind of like a Sea World style uh, tank. It doesn't have water in it, but it is like a a deep divot in the ground and with a with like sort of a, a, a bleachers around it, so people will go there and view this uh, this baby Godzilla looking thing. Um, by the way, this, oh, this is ha- another. This actually, pre- sorry, you know, this actually precedes the Son of Godzilla, which is 1967. Gorgo is 1961. Oh, that's interesting. So this is a this is a, a baby parent kaiju film before Son of Godzilla. That's wild. Um, but uh, yeah, so you you have this uh, King Kong setup where a monster is captured and then used for profit. You know where the monster is like very obviously suffering. You're supposed to feel like how cruel this is. Um, it just it, it rips off King Kong. Um, and then the. Oh, poor old girl guy. They just they just dump him in a pit with nothing like that. Right, <laughs> they take right. Him to London. And that that is the baby monster's name, Gorgo. So he is the titular monster, not his mother. Well, I think it's a mother. Uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, who is I think named Ogra? I think they something. say it's the mother, don't they? Ogre, oh, do yeah. they? Okay, I don't know how they know unless there's like a giant giant poochie hanging off. I don't know if you noticed this one, Nat, but the the island where it's based, where where they find Gorgo, is called Nara, which is also the island from Godzilla. Isn't it, where he goes wait, to... wait, wait, wait. Where, what what's the island called? You cut out there. Nara Island, N A R A. Oh wow! So Nara Island, even though I I believe this, uh, they find the monster off the coast of like Scotland or something, right? Although although the the other theory is that it could just be an anagram of Aran, which is a Scottish island. Oh okay, all right. So yeah, they they're a bunch of uh, sailors looking for gold, and that's how they originally find the uh, the monsters in the ocean. Uh, they just sort of well, run into them. There's a huge explosion that that cracks something under the sea isn't there and that's where i think that brings up all the gold doesn't it ah yes 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 so yeah there is a uh, um a underwater eruption right um and uh (laughs) one of the main characters he has kind of this funny accent he sort of talks like (laughs) this with a hat full of gold and he's not even british (laughs) there's actually a lot of american actors in this um but, it is, it uh, is a co in, uh, it is a co, co uh, UK and US production. Probably. Yeah, and and the production values are really good. This was made over twenty years before Paul Gasari. Um, the, I'd say the production values are actually much better than Paul Gasari. So that's kind of funny to me um, that an actual movie made in the sixties, actually the very beginning of the sixties, not long after Godzilla, I think only about seven years after Godzilla, um, has decent production values. Um, and the acting is really decent. The acting is really decent. The only problem is that it's so slow. It's so slow. And the events going on and it in the movie... doesn't have a great deal in the, in the way of substance either, does it? Right. They, I don't I feel what... like this has a very political message to it. Um, 
but I guess there are some social themes as well, but they're so kind of, I don't know, juvenile or superficial where it's like, hey, don't be greedy and lock up a monster against its will or else you're going to suffer. This is not a film that's trying to subvert you, is it? (laughs) There's zero subversion going on during this film. Not only is, is it not subversive, it's also not really trying to say anything substantive um so yeah it is kind of a popcorn movie i i'm i'm not sure what what they were trying to do here uh, unless they were like hey you know that those monster movies that the japs are making we should do something like that so the tagline for this movie yeah. is like nothing you've ever seen before that is a lie that is a lie <laughs> The, the monsters look like Godzilla. I mean, they come out of the ocean like Godzilla. They lock up one of the monsters like King Kong. This is a movie you have seen before. It's like things you've seen before. <laughs> but, you know, there, there are if, some... If you, haven't got, if you don't have the time to watch Godzilla or King Kong, you can watch the two in one car. There you go. And, and yeah, I mean, and the movie is like an hour long. So it blows in, it blows up Big Ben, and it blows out. It's got some pretty good effects in there because they, uh, where where uh, Ogre roll, she rolls over the battleship, doesn't she? You see uh, Tower Bridge being smashed to bits. You see um, Big being smashed to bits. Yeah, they're, absolutely. They're and and but the, I have a problem with this scene. So there's like one scene of of stuff getting destroyed. I mean, I guess it goes on for maybe ten minutes, uh, if that. But um, they destroy London Bridge. And and I guess you you call it Tower Bridge, but someone shouts. Sorry, it's t- yeah. Someone shouts. Yeah, it's Tower Bridge. The, right. Someone shouts. The bridge is gone. One of London's timeless landmarks smashed like matchwood. <laughs> it sounds like a narrator saying, but I'm pretty sure it's in the. It's a character uh, saying it. It's the reporter, isn't it? The re- the the reporter doing the narration, isn't it? Right. But I'm pissed off because nobody more. says London Bridge is falling down. <laughs> what the fuck missed opportunities man oh dear the script writer must have been on and off i mean it, it it doesn't help that the movie ends like an episode of dms like once the main plot beats are finished <laughs> the narrator reads off an outro and the credits roll basically it ends very abruptly yeah, yeah. um but also that nobody says london bridge is falling down <laughs> although immediately after uh you do see a scene with people hiding in the tube that's their subway getting wrecked. I feel like that's sort of an intentional reference to World War II when like the Germans were bombing London and everyone was hiding in in the tube. Yeah, yeah, I think that's something that I said it's very it, it's evoking the blitz. I mean, this is only like 15 years after the end of World War II, so the blitz is still pretty strong in everybody's mind, isn't it? Right, right, right. Now, if only uh Ogre had been around in 1941, perhaps western civilization would still be standing. <laughs> and we also see Piccadilly Square getting wrecked, which is I, I actually uh, so Piccadilly Square for people not familiar is kind of like Times Square in New York, where it's very shiny, lots of lights and all this stuff. And I feel like there was a lot of opportunity to do some cool special effects stuff there, but they don't really go too far with that. You could have had a lot of uh, pyrotechnics and stuff as it's destroying all the, you know, electrical uh, displays and and whatnot. But um. You know, this this movie is very much. Kind I did also of a... notice there was there was something in there that we that we haven't seen since like the eighties. It's the man with the Endies knife sandwich board. Oh, you don't see that in films. Anymore, no. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, this would. Um, <laughs> I, I I mean, you do see that in the news when whenever they talk about global warming. I mean, it's not a man with a yeah. sandwich board on the corner anymore. It's just CNN. 
<laughs> yeah, and then, thing I notice is what were they what were they feeding Gorgo? At no point whatsoever did they talk about feeding Gorgo, did they? No, not at all. Um, although I I don't think they really talk about feeding King Kong either. So because this movie is such a ripoff, I don't think they were compelled to kind of justify anything that King Kong didn't do already. <laughs> and uh, as soon as Ogre gets Gorgo back, they just go back into the ocean and like, I don't know, there was something with a little kid and the story sort of following a subplot around him, although it's not very, I think he was like rooting for, he was rooting for that, Gorgo to become free. Odd. He's basically, he's basically that scientist's slave, wasn't he? From what I gathered, <laughs> he doesn't really do anything <laughs> in the movie either. You think like it, I, I thought that it was going to be building up to something like Free Willy, where he helps Gorgo get yeah. free, but no, he's a non-actor in the story. <laughs> it just be like is that scientist just sort of owned, him. <laughs> and then those two guys kind of adopted him, didn't they? He's just like he's just like a bit of flotsam, uh, film flotsam, isn't it? Well, this has been very enlightening. We've heard about movies from one side of Eurasia to the other, where monsters are just messing stuff up. And I think that's pretty dope. I want to thank you, Sir Hemingford, for talking with me today. You've been great. No problem, that. I like you. And I want to thank all of our listeners. Stay dope. People running by me on the city lights Just like the way that you